0: And realised that they'd not really got a massive amount of financial processes and systems in place, if any. And some of the people that worked in the business weren't exactly the full box of chocolates. So I went through, went through spent basically spent two days, went through all the numbers and worked out that it was tri- it was absolutely just I mean it was battered to the tune of about seven million quid. But it had built up oh debt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it owed the revenue, it owed HMRC £1.7 million just in VAT.
1: Welcome to Beyond the Fail, the podcast where we talk to leaders and entrepreneurs about their biggest business failures. We'll deep dive into how they overcame these setbacks, the lessons they learned from them, all to help you gain valuable insights. Failure is an essential part of the business journey, as well as being the key to success. So we're here to show you how to thrive from it. Today, we have a seasoned guest who wears many hats in the construction and property world, Richard Stone. A property developer, chartered construction manager, trustee, and TEDx speaker, Richard brings an impressive 40 years of experience in business, construction, and high-level executive leadership. With a sterling reputation in the construction industry, he has not only completed over 300 million pounds worth of property projects but also has orchestrated a staggering 3,500 plus refurbishments. Now, as the founder of his own project management training company, he generously imparts his wealth and knowledge to aspiring professionals. Rich's entrepreneurial journey includes founding and growing businesses with one rapidly reaching £4 million in revenue within its second year. And now, as a mentor, he collaborates with other business owners, offering his invaluable advice to maximise their profit and reclaim their time. He also has his own podcast and is a sought-after public speaker and has undertaken a whopping 100 speaking engagements in the last 12 months. In today's episode... Richard candidly shares the shocking experience of receiving a death threat after closing a large construction business down which was saddled with seven million pounds of debt. He also opens up about the challenges of liquidating his own successful project management company due to the sudden impacts of COVID resulting in the cancellation of millions of pounds worth of contracts. So strap yourself in folks as we delve into the extraordinary and often shocking stories of Richard Stone. And this is an episode you won't want to miss. This is Beyond the Foul with Richard Stone. Richard, thank you for joining me um, today. How are you doing? I'm all good, Jez, thank you. Yeah, good day today. Got some good stuff planned for the weekend. So yeah, absolutely flying. So Richard, take us back. Where where do you kind of all begin um, for you in kind of business? And in
0: business, oh, wow! I mean, I've been in construction for well, construction management for thirty years. This year, I've worked on the tools. I've worked in management. Um, I've run my own companies. I've I've run businesses on behalf of other people. Um, some successful. Some some that were successful, and then something happened with the market, or or with the team, or with or with the world. Um, so yeah, I've known like real real peaks of you know doing, doing remarkably well. Um, and then all of a sudden things happen and you know I went from a salary of 150 grand company Range Rover company credit cards to being back on the tools in a van within a week because yeah. a bank decided they fell out of love with construction so yeah I've, I've kind of I've known the kind of like really seriously like nice level of lifestyle through through construction and Right and, that, and literally had it pulled up like, within a matter of hours, just by one fax. I mean that shows you where it was. <laughs> it was a fax on an email, but, but yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's been a roller coaster. And but do you know what? I wouldn't change any of it.
1: What well, made you get started in construction?
0: Uh, my old man was in it. Always still is in it. To be fair. I mean, he's a consultant, and he's retired about six times. But yeah, family like going back generations have been in construction and contracting. So. Yeah, that was that's where the sort of the initial kind of introduction to it, and you know, I think for me it was seeing taking like loads of timber, loads of bricks, and creating something tangible. That at five years old, I realized like this is like way beyond like Lego, and mm. I just fell in love with it from then. And then it was more about the teamwork and the camaraderie. And then when you sort of moved from being on the tools into management, then it was about making a bit of coin and and realizing about. I mean, people nowadays talk about leverage, but I learned about leverage 30 years ago, about actually being a contractor rather than being a trade. So, so yeah, it was kind of sort of, the bit of a bit of a journey from being on the tools into management and then the recession hit and went back on the tools because there was no jobs in management and then sort of grew my way back out of that and then managed to get myself fired after doing um, a massive public speaking um, piece of work and got fired for that. So, yeah, and then we set up on our own and that was going really well. We had with a really solid order book. Making really good margin. End of year one accounts were absolutely flying. We had over three months, just under four million quid over work secured for year
1: two, and then COVID hit, and it got cancelled within a week. So we lost the company. I mean, as you say, it sounds like a roller coaster, and and obviously we will kind of dive into um, some of that. Um, so just some follow up questions, I suppose. You said you got fired for a public speaking uh, engagement. What 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 did that involve?
0: Yeah, so a few uh, a good good few years ago, I um my biggest fear was always public speaking. It, it was my Achilles heel. Um and I got the opportunity to speak to the so the whole of the UK social housing industry um on stage at the NEC in Birmingham. And it was an opportunity I couldn't pass up. But it meant I had to do 6 months of really deep work with a coach um, to get out of my own way and overcome my own fears. Um and we, we put together a really good slide deck, um, quite a technical slide deck, telling the social housing industry about why their procurement model didn't work. Uh, so did it with a couple of other people, went out there on stage, delivered it, got really, really phenomenal feedback from people in the room. It was like well, it, it was it was like three times oversubscribed for the amount of people that we could hold in the room. And in the bar afterwards, my boss turned up. And he was like, "Listen," he said. I'm getting like loads of people coming up to me saying, "Like, what's all this about? What are you talking about?" And anyway, about a week later, he said to me that and he said, i just just done that," and, and we were sitting in a pub, like, and and like we were both like wearing suits. We wasn't on the lash or anything. but we'd arranged it. He'd asked me to meet him. I met him in a pub, and I don't know whether you've ever been in this situation where you get this kind of like this like sixth sense that somebody wants to say something. Mm. And after about 15, 20 minutes of dancing around, I just said to him, look, you've got something to say. Whatever it is, let's just have it out. Let's just just get it out there. And, and he just couldn't. And I said to him, look, I'm not here for a party. I, I'm getting the impression that there's like something's going down here. And he was like, listen, he said, yeah, I said, I'm not sure there's enough room in the company for both of us. Now, bearing in mind, I'd been hired to come into that company to, to, to basically to grow from being an ops manager into man, managing director and to take it over and run it from him. Um, I was a bit aggrieved at that. Do you think that was the real reason? or mm, No, I don't. I think there was other reasons behind it. I think it was probably a convenient, a convenient thing to hang it on um, because the feedback from people in the room um at my level at his level and from clients was absolutely phenomenal that this was just what the industry needed it Mm. was really well delivered you know that i delivered a big part of it other people deliver parts of it as well and and they got similar feedback so no i think it's just like
1: things but do you know what it's life but did he blame it on the speech at the time Mm, not particularly it was just the timing of it that it was Mm.
0: all these things sort of happened very in very quick succession so you know it is what it is it's I'd, I'd massively believe that things happen for a reason. And, and we sort of, that happened. And then we set up our own business, which we were doing really well. That was really successful. So, you know, and, and you know, we, I wouldn't have done that if it wasn't for that. I would have carried on working for other people. So.
1: And you talked about having a, a fear of public speaking. And you did, you know, six months of work and you said you got out your own way. What did, or what obstacles were you putting in your way?
0: What obstacles were I think the fear That everybody else Was going to judge me And I think I think part of it Is probably Getting to know yourself more Part of it Is the work I've done Obviously on my own mindset And my neurology And working with Different coaches And investing Quite a lot of time In that sort of stuff And I think Part of it Is probably um, Probably timing I think I think when we You know We all have different phases In our life And I think I probably Was coming to the end Of one phase And moving into another one and the realization that you know, when we're in our sort of twenties, you know, or teens and twenties, we think the whole world just is fixated on what we're doing. We sort of lose a little bit of that in our thirties, and then when we get into our sort of forties, we're like, actually, we, there's this realization that the world doesn't actually give a shit what you want. Mm-hmm. And I think it was it was a culmination of
1: lots of different things. Okay. So, but you only found that out through working through that with that coach yeah doing that work yeah i wouldn't have done it otherwise
0: i would never worked with co- i would never worked with coaches before up, up until six years ago i'd never the only coach i've been on was a rugby coach <laughs> i would never never had a coach and to be brutally honest i was hugely skeptical mm-hmm. hugely skeptical about it what changed your mind um i think seeing the results that i got out of working with that guy and it wasn't i didn't go out to find a coach um i'm kind of like a bit weird i sort of if I know I need to do something, I will create like a proper hardcore backstop that I cannot get out of. So by putting myself up to work for the National Housing Forum to deliver that piece of content, it was publicised. It was all over all their socials. They'd spent underground on marketing and, and wow. promo and point of sale stuff. I knew I had no exit. There was no parachute. I had to show up and do it. And I was sitting at centre parks with my wife on holiday. Just like chatting through it, and she said to me, "Look, I think you need to go and have a conversation with this guy that I used to work with." I was like, "Who's this? Like, I've never even like heard you mention him." And I mean, she was a copper, and like she was a copper, I was in construction. Then two worlds don't really collide very well. Do you know what I mean? So I've not, I've not heard of the guy. So I had a conversation with him, and we just gelled instantly. But he's, um, and he actually delivers an input on my course now. But he's uh, an ex-hospitality negotiator. So what he doesn't know about, like trust and rapport, and like mindset and all that stuff and for me doing that work for six months and then getting that result to go from so so far left field to then absolutely kind of like way through neutral and way into like positive I was like this is this is cool so when we set our own company up I was like do you know what actually I've always had peers I've always been on a board I've always had a, like a board of of other people to bounce ideas off of and when we were working on our own it didn't really have that so that's what kind of like sped me sort of into sort of working with different coaches and different people. I mean, I've got four different people I'm working with right now. So yeah, that's yeah. something I'm massively
1: investing. in. Are they, the people that you're working with now, are they like, what, what does that relationship look like? Are they coaches? Are they mentors? Are they, are so they true, official? Sorry. Is it, is it not, it's not official?
0: Yeah, no, so they're all, so sort of they're all official. Um. One's a mentor, three are coaches. Right. I would say it's probably the best way to describe it. So, And
1: they're for very targeted things as well. How do you differentiate in your mind between a coach and a mentor? Wow, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it?
0: So so a coach is, is, coach is about actually asking the right questions to get you to give the answers, whereas a mentor is somebody that's actually sort of been there, done it, in what you want to do. So, the so the person that I'm working with on the training stuff is somebody that's actually been there and done it, but isn't doing it with a big, massive training business where our values wouldn't align necessarily, probably. So, so that's very much mentoring. Whereas the other people that I'm working with are about
1: coaching because they they were working on very different sort of pieces of work. Who is your very first mentor? Was it your your dad? Uh, yeah, it would have
0: been my dad, uh, definitely, when I was really, really young, and probably my granddad to a, to, a, to a degree, although we didn't see him that often, but he was one of them people that, like, either now, I mean, I was teaching last weekend, and, like, two or three times, I, there was, like, little things that he taught me that was like, right, you need to remember this. And they were like, where did they, and I've just gone cold, actually, thinking about it. And they were like, where does that come from? And I'm like, I've been really fortunate to have some, absolutely top mentors that are like literally on the board of billion dollar businesses they've mentored me and i'm not just my dad but other people that we've paid a lot of money for so to to get further faster to get the results that i want to get and to get insight to people at that level as well because you know you can't just buy that
1: and you mentioned your granddad giving you lots of great advice and mention it in the in the training what what particularly came up in that training last week what was the phrase or the quote or, or the analogy so the so the one that always brings to mind is that the worst handwriting is better than the best memory okay
0: because he said he used to say to me that that people used to moan about like wages and money and stuff and, and it was because they never wrote down all their hours and stuff so they put their, they'd like get paid and they'd like not have their overtime written and it'll
1: be because they've not made not like signed in or they've not done the records probably. So is that like what's the modern day equivalent of that? Is that like essentially not keeping up your admin? Yeah, basically, yeah. Mm. And that, and that. I mean, I talk, I talk about construction and
0: commercial conversions and new build, but it's relevant to whatever you do. Mm. You know, if you're running around having like a hundred conversations with people, nothing's ever backed up in writing. And six months' time, someone's like, "Well, what happened with that?" You're like, "Well, I don't know." Mm. Was if you've got even the most basic level of email, it's like, well, okay, well, I will send you an email about it. Let's let's go back to that, and you know, I spend a lot of time unpicking mess in construction projects, and and people are like, people always like show show up at the first meeting, kind of. I'm right, I it's, it's, I'm right. I've never done anything, and I'm like, it doesn't matter. If it's
1: right. It matters who's got the best records. Mm. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, completely. You mentioned your your dad and him being a mentor. He, what has he taught you? What lessons have you learned from him? Um, I think his biggest lesson was... his biggest. The biggest thing he said to
0: me was, don't grow up and be like me. Have you? Uh, well, that's a, do you know what? I've never been asked that question. Um, increasingly, yes. Um, and it was really interesting that I find it weird because I absolutely love what I do. It's not work. Let's just be clear. I don't have a job. It's not work. I love what I do. And people are like, I'm so jealous. I wish I loved what I do. And you can see People say they can see it in my physiology, in my voice, in my timbre of my voice. When I'm doing the stuff I love doing, right? And it is an absolute pleasure to be able to do that. But it does come with its challenges because it's very hard to switch off because you love what you do. It's my passion, it's my hobby as well as what I do during the day. So I will quite happily still be sitting in the office at 10, 11 o'clock at night working on some slides or or watching something on YouTube that I think I can learn from or, or watching another speaker because I don't care about what they're talking about, I'm watching their speaking. That brings challenges because you don't switch off and it's so important to be able to switch off. And my brother sent me a just like a little clip of an interview, a podcast interview, just only literally last week. And um, he sent it was through Insta, I think. And it was quite insightful actually because it was it was a lady that was being interviewed on in the podcast, and she said, "Do you know what?" She said, "The biggest tellings I have is that actually I forget work-life balance." She says, "I am addicted to what I do," mm. and it was like an absolute wow moment. Because I am, I've got an addictive personality. It's no secret. I've I've struggled with with addiction and on, on other stuff, which I've talked about on other podcasts. And I think I probably have replaced some of those addictions mm. with an addiction to work. But now I've now because I'm doing something positive, it feels like it's healthy, as opposed to being addicted to other sorts of shit, which is not healthy. But the fact is, it's not healthy because it's all consuming. So him trying to sort of say to me look actually don't be like me do not be a workaholic don't spend like weekends and evenings i mean i remember like when computers first came out and literally the company worked for gave him a computer because he done a monster big final account and he had to computerize it and we were not allowed to speak to him he we was sitting at the dining room table for months producing this massive great big final account on a computer we can go near him was that too- i love him to bits he's absolutely my rock but yeah it's um He's a career, and even now he's like properly still. Like I mean, he's, he's like well into his seventies, but he still loves it. He loves what
1: he does, and and it, it's rubbed off on of me. I'm, I love what I do. So, so, given that advice, do you think you followed it, or 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 done the opposite? Mm, I think I've unconsciously found
0: myself falling into that trap, and I'm now trying to consciously not rewind because you can't ever rewind i'm trying to become more conscious about the fact that i don't end up doing that so i'm literally i've been in the office all day i'm recording this now with you and it's early evening i'll do this and then i'll check out and i won't be back in the office this evening because i want to try and be more present at home now that's not always perfect it's not always easy because um you know i do a lot of speaking the people listening might not know i do a lot of speaking i do a lot of training There are a lot of events for myself and for other businesses. That's quite often at the weekend. So I'm trying more to be around during the week and to be at home during the week more. Um, And we're looking at ways we're going to restructure stuff into 2024 so that I'm actually at home and I'm not out actually on speaker circuit as much as I have been this year because I've done well over 100 events this year and it's been absolutely brutal
1: yeah and 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 i was just thinking about what you said and about you know y- your dad and you know seeing him there at the computer the, at the uh the table and um it, it kind of sounds like in some ways that you know uh, the way that you've kind of got your businesses set up there is some parallels yeah um, yeah there is undoubtedly yeah yeah i'd I, I be an idiot to try and deny it it's
0: there's massive parallels um, I'm now at the point where I'm restructuring stuff so that mm. actually I can be more present. You know, the children are, are now a bit older. I mean, Oliver's in, in London at uni. Charlie's 17 and learning to drive. Ruby's 13, so they're a bit older now. We are mm. coming into that phase of life where actually they don't want us around as much. Mm. Yeah, the you know, they don't the want to go depending. off and do their own thing. Mm. And support, support for them looks a little bit different. I mean, I'm not working at the weekend as much as I worked all weekend. Last weekend, this weekend, I'm off. I'm at a swimming gala in Coventry, I think, with Ruby because supporting her. So, but it's about making sure that the support is there and it doesn't necessarily always have to be in person. Like she was at a gala last weekend swimming as part of a team for a regional. And I watched it on YouTube, but I sent her a message two seconds after I watched it and she, she was fired at. So, like a lot of people, I think, get caught up on actually. And I was talking to a guy on Clubhouse last year about this, about being present in the room and his biggest guilt was that he was in the room watching the film with his wife and with his three kids but he wasn't there in his head he was in his business thinking about his piano in his head and he's he really really mentally struggles with that so I'm trying to be not only in the room but actually in the room in my head if that makes sense because otherwise I'd feel like a fraud And and do any of us ever get that perfectly right no I don't think we do I think it's about trying to put stuff in place in the business to enable there to be a, an element of calm so that you can actually step away from it
1: yeah because if you if in the back of your head you you're kind of thinking about all the potential problems and chaos going on then you you it can be very difficult however much you try to focus in what's going on in in that room yeah
0: and it's, you know, it's, I mean, I've got 16, 16 live client projects on right now. We've got a training course. We've got a mastermind with a dozen plus people on it. They've all got projects, you know, so there is a lot going on. But yeah, it's just about, and that's the the benefit of in systems and processes
1: that actually it makes it easier to be able to just go, Do you know what, let's just have a deep breath here. So I suppose just sort of fast forwarding your, what was your kind of first business that you set up on your own and what success did you see? within that my first business wow I mean I started work at 11
0: <clears throat> so I mean I had jobs in pubs and I was doing stuff for other people um I went self-employed set up a fencing or bought into a fencing company uh, with a guy who was older than me that I met in a pub um we were really we, we were really successful we had 12 guys at the peak um for probably two or three years um and then he got he got caught up in a really really messy relationship and it cost him it's like over 50 grand in divorce solicitors right. and then all of a sudden money was disappearing out of the company and it was it was completely i mean bearing in mind i was like 16 17. it was not like some great big like absolute alliance with a big contract and all that stuff it was two guys that a in the public just done a bit of collet together with a team of looks and uh money was going missing like supplies weren't getting paid some of the power tools were disappearing and it was like hold on a minute what's going on here and it become apparent that he'd not paid his solicitor's bill either, and we were sitting sitting in his dining room, going through doing all the invoicing and that, and his solicitor actually come round his house to knock the door to say like, "How oh, is my money? Like, I'm, I'm due in court on Monday for you. If you don't pay me, I won't be turning up." And I was like, yeah. "What is going on?" And he, broke, he just broke down. I mean, <laughs> that's quite a lot to deal with at sixteen yeah it wasn't yeah do you know what i mean i'm sitting here like all like billy big bollocks laughing and joking but i have I mean i lost my best friend at 18 when he committed suicide so life has not been like a box of chocolates but yeah i mean it, it's tough but you know you've got a man up i mean i was i was on the tools working at 11 working with fences and scaffolders. so i've been in the i'd already been in the industry quite a while so I've sort of seen like other people have like, like labor gangs split up, geezers rolling around on the floor outside the site office about wages on a Friday. So, you know, I knew, I kind of knew sort of what I was getting into, but mm. yeah, it's, um, yeah, I've always been older than my years, I think, because obviously I had those jobs at sort of 11. It sort of makes you sort of mature really quickly. Um, I mean, I, I got that job because literally I moved from Birmingham when I was eight to Bristol, um, and then got quite badly bullied because of the way I spoke. So as soon as I could get a job, I had like four jobs within like about three months of each other. And I was like, I used a bit of my wages to just like locate okay the bullies just so they'd just like jog on and leave me alone so I could really? just back on some early money. You paid them off essentially. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, not not tons, like a kind yeah. of quid here. But like, I mean, I, mean I, I used to go scaffolding or labouring their scaffolders on the Saturday, into like Bristol, and sometimes up into London. And I could down um, between fifty and hundred quid for a day. So if I gave them two quid for some sweets, they thought they'd have a the touch. And I was like, Do you know what? This is just easy. It's easier yeah. to just pay them than to just start rolling around the floor with them. It just, just thought, Do you know what? Life's
1: too short. I just can't be asked. And you said you had four jobs at eleven. What was the mo? What was the driver and the motivator there to have that many jobs? Okay, so partly money, um, because we were—I mean, don't me wrong—we never, we
0: didn't come from like from a bad background, you know. Like my mum come from like a council house background. We was never like there was never tons of money, but we never went without, you know. I mean, my mum had a job on Saturdays in B Jam, so we could have like Christmas presents. But like me and my brother took it in terms like who got like a like a good Christmas present. Like, I'm gonna say like a good Christmas. I mean, like my man went down to like the police auction and got a second hand bike, not like. An Xbox and like shit the kids want now, but so you know we was all right. We, you know we went on our offers or nothing. But so a little bit it was my own money and independence. But my first job at eleven was in the pub washing dishes, and because like I, I just turned up on time and I worked hard, and because I turned up on time I worked hard, I got respected, and I never want. had that. Mm-hmm. I never had that at school. And I thought, I've quickly worked out that all, all I've got to do is, is turn up on time, work hard, ask ask if I can do more, show willing. And, like, literally, I went for washing dishes for, like, about, I think, probably six weeks. And then the who used to do the bottling up in the morning, started not turning in. So I'd go and do the bottling up before school. And then they was like, oh, do you want to do a couple of extra shifts of the weekend? I was like, yeah, sweet. And then one day, the landlord's son, he had the landlord had a son and a daughter, and the son that was a landscaping firm, and he was like, oh, I need someone to, like, come and load out a load of turf at the, at the weekend. Do you want to, like, come and help? Because, like, he seen me, like, lugging barrels and shit, right? Right. So I was like, yeah, sweet, right. And he'd give me 50 quid. And we were in the pub at turf, like, I was like, what? I said, like, mate, I just said to him, you can't give me all this money. He's like, shut up and put it in your bin. And I was like, touch. So I was like, straight away, I was like, happy days. Because I've got £10 a night for washing dishes. I've got 50 quid. And all I've done is go, go and have a quick breakfast smoke some fags and another can of coke in the van on the way to work Load out some turf and then come back and go to the pub and have two beers i was like this is like what this is what this, this is the life so, so i've done that and then the daughter had a boyfriend who was a scaffolder and he was in the two geezers worked for a big firm in bristol but they used to do their own work as well like on the way back from the yard and stuff and um like they just wanted the labour, like to do, knock down a big job one day, and because and I turned up on time and just grafted my bollocks off, they were like, "You can come every time we've got private work," and it just it just went from there. And I was like, "Okay, sweet yeah, happy day." So they would always like say to me, like, "Oh, do you want to work?" And then I wanted to make this is like the most mental story. I wanted to make a beanbag, right? And do, I don't know if you remember, but do you remember when pubs had beer towels on the bar? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I wanted to make a bean bag out of beer towels. And the landlord had given me about 50 beer towels. But I worked out I needed another 40. And he was like, well, I haven't got any more. And he said, like, you'll have to, like, go, and, go down the Fox or go to, I can't remember, the Mason's Arms. I was like, I ain't going all the way there. And there was a transport calf at the other end of our village that we lived in. And he went, go and see and see if he's got any. So I went up to Steve Bayman, the guy who ran this transport calf, who's now a doctor. For his services to meningitis but that's a whole different story. And um, but I was really apprehensive about going in and asking, and I don't know why, but I just he was like he was quite a highly regarded geezer. And I was sitting just on my on my bike, like at the entrance to the to the lorry park in the transport cat. And uh he was like, What are you doing here, boy? I was like, uh, and I proper like stuttered, he went, Do you want a job? What do you need? He went, Do you want a job? I need someone to back all these lorries in. What? what? He went, my boy don't want to do it. He's got too much fucking dough wrapped around him. Do you want to do it? I'll give you four pounds of shift. I was like, call it five and you've got a deal. I said, but I want all the beer <laughs> So straight away, like literally straight from school, I used to like take my, take my clobber to school, get changed and spin down the transport cafe and do a couple of hours there and go and get
1: me dinner. I mean, it sounds like you were the only working man in the uh, in the village, kind of thing. Not, like, not told. do you know what? There was some proper good grafters in that thing, right? Some
0: really, really good grafters. But yeah, I just like if anybody wanted anything done, I would do it for like a couple of quid. Go muck out, pit horses. Go, hey, Bailin. Like, yeah, whatever. I don't bother turn time,
1: head or anything. And and it's noticeable talking about you at eleven, and the theme there was essentially hard work, graft. And then we fast forward to what we were talking about just a second ago and you've still got that and that's obviously been instilled with you from a young age. Yeah, I mean, my nan said to me, so
0: my mum was from Birmingham, my dad was from Southampton, so when I talk about my granddad, I'm talking about my dad's dad and my nan is my mum's mum and she said to me, ain't no one coming to save you, boy. You've got to go out. If you want it, you've got to go out and earn it. And it's always just, it's always, always stuck with me and, you know, she didn't have a lot of money wrapped around her, but she always, she always, always was alright because she always, she always worked. You know, worked in a post office. She would work in bars, pubs. She's just, just relentless. Would always, always, always collar, and you know, didn't have a lot, but what she did have, she, she'd work for, and she looked, and she looked after it. You know, she couldn't afford a TV. She used to rent a TV and put fifty p's in the back, but she was industrious and worked out that with a bit of thread and a bit of sellotape, you could get them back right. out again. Oh,
1: clever. Well, I mean, obviously, we're going back a few years talking about, um, you know, putting money in the TV. But, um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's just never left me. You know, that work ethic's
0: always served me well. At the end of the day, a bank account, you know, you can only take out what you're putting, you put in, And it's like work. You've got to put the work in. If you don't put the work in, you've got no right
1: to expect the results. Mm. But it sounds like you've had some really strong role models in terms of work ethic around you. Yeah yeah absolutely my mum
0: and dad have both absolutely grafted their nuts off like their parents did as well I mean my dad on my dad's side my dad actually my granddad had to retire at 50 I think he's 55 um he worked in the docks designing boats uh, as a draftsman and he had to retire to look after my nan so he retrained and he used to do um like building rigs drawings and stuff for people's extensions and stuff so he was like looking after my nan but he was also doing that and I never knew my my mum's dad because he was a, like prisoner of war, and he died just like when he came home. He, didn't, he wasn't around for too long, but yeah, now I've been really fortunate to have some proper strong role models. We've not always seen eye to eye, and we've definitely not always agreed. That's for certain, um, but yeah, they've um, they've always done their best to keep me straight and narrow as much as possible.
1: And you mentioned running a business at, at sixteen, and obviously, you know, starting that with your mate. Would you say that? you were entrepreneurial or was that literally just a means to an end to kind of get money um I thought do you know what I think
0: it's just a means to an end I mean I didn't even know what the word entrepreneur meant and Mm. you know thinking about it now I mean like I think about Steve Damon I mean he was proper entrepreneurial. we had like loads different I mean I had some like right characters around me there was him there was Johnny the market man there was like loads of people and and they were entrepreneurial because they knew how to make a pound note. They was murdered around the pound note. They had loads of different ways of making money. They had more digits in more pies than than you could ever think of. And they knew how to make money. Was I entrepreneurial? No, I don't believe I was. I think I was just like, spot. I think I could spot an opportunity, I think is probably what I would say. I've always been able to to look at a situation and go, do you know what? What What is their problem? What are they? And Gemma says we were doing a thing the other day on. Um, like analysing each other's personalities. And she said to me, You have this innate ability to make a really complex problem seem really simple to somebody that doesn't understand the complexity and therefore provide a solution. And I think I've always been able to look look at a situation and go, what is the actual issue? And and how can I with what with the gifts and skills I've got, can I can I put some sort of
1: proposition to solve it? And you know, you can't always do that. But if you can, then there's a pound to be made. And from the stories you've already told, an observation I would probably make is that you're obviously a very good networker as well.
0: Yeah, do you know what? One of the guys that does some work in our business, Andrew Bat, he's like. I mean, he's t- he teaches networking, and I, uh, I think it's. I think you can teach people to do it, but I think to a degree, I think you've either got it or you haven't. And for a lot of years, I I was really sort of like. I would. I didn't feel very positive about the fact that I'd sort of moved from Birmingham to Bristol and the bullying and shit, and then we moved from there to Wing. But the one thing, or it's taught me a few things. It's taught me. It's taught me resilience. It's taught me that you have to get out of your own way, and you have to go and talk to people that you don't know, you know. And and people might be. People might. Adults might feel scared about doing that at a networking event. Try doing that at eight years old when you've lived in Birmingham your whole life. You talk like a bloody brummy mm-hmm. and you go and walk into a school where they're all driving tractors and all carrot crunchers. That that eight, the, the, all of a sudden, that networking meeting is going to look a bit easier. So I think it's been it's been born out of necessity. I think to a degree, but yeah, I mean, I love a bit of networking. I mean, it's one of the reasons I like the speaking is because is because you get to meet so many people, and I've got such a diverse network. It's quality. I love it.
1: So we talked to we talked off off uh, offline about um some of the stories you might be sort of sharing today and you you mentioned about having to shut a company down that you were running was that the same issue as the as the as the covid and the recession or are they all different No, it's different. No, it's different. So so I was working for,
0: so I worked, I, my career went from site, I, when I when I come off the tools, I went into site management and I spent 11 and just under 12 years working for one business and I was trained and coached and mentored to go from site manager to ops director and then I left because we tried to do a mentor buyout, and the chairman wouldn't do it. So I went consulting for a few years and I was doing some work for a venture capitalist who so four businesses um, and he, he made an offer for me to come in and run some of them. So I was running a couple of them for him. Um, and he bought another company up in just outside Liverpool in St Helens, and um, I came back from a couple of weeks off, and he said, oh, "I've bought another business, need you to go ahead and have a look at it." So I was like, "Okay." So you know, I construction a, a, businesses, I construction did. company, yeah. So he, he he completed the purchase. It was a pound purchase, so he'd only paid a pound for the business. So I went up with right registered due diligence, and within about probably about four hours, realised that this company was pretty fucked. <laughs> I mean, it was pretty apparent when I'm sitting in the boardroom and there's a geezer dumping 20 tonne of Type 1 in the driveway so that none of us can get our motors out because he wants pain. And he's owed for about 60 loads of muck away. So within about four hours, I've gone through like the debtors and creditors and, and realised that they'd not really got a massive amount of financial processes and systems in place, if any. And some of the people that worked in the business weren't exactly the full box of chocolates. So... I went through, went through, spent, basically spent two days, went through all the numbers and worked out that it was, tri- it was absolutely just, I mean, it was battered to the tune of about 7 million quid. But it had built yeah, up. Debt. Oh,
1: yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it owed the revenue. It owed HMRC 1.7 million pounds just in VAT. So, it was, it was a bit of a challenge. Um, not made any easier by the age of the outgoing, um, Business owners because they were they were in their late. She was in late sixties. He was in his late seventies, and he was riddled with cancer as well. Um, There was loads. There was all sorts of anomalies. It's all public record. It's all on the company's house. You can go and look at it. Um, Yeah, I mean, it it was it was absolutely mullered, and there were some big big creditors. There were companies owed well over a quarter of a million quid, and there was dozens of them, and there was loads of smaller trade creditors. And I So how did that how did it play out then? How so, what did you so I went did, through did, it. I, I had calls with probably 25, 30 of these companies to validate the position that the com- that the contracting business was saying, found out it wasn't right, found out the true position, and then just literally unpacked it from there. I set up a conference call because this was like the Zoom wasn't a the thing then. So we had a conference call with the owners, the finance director, went through all the findings. The finance director like asked loads of questions. The shareholders were obviously pretty aggrieved, um, and said, "Look, the, you know it's not sustainable." I said, "I've spent this this afternoon today looking at the order book and looking at the pipeline of what we've got coming in, and you'd have to trade this business for seventy five years to pay this down, because the, like the scale of the problem is so huge that you can't you can't trade out of it. So we need to call in an insolvency practitioner. So." made a call to an insolvency practitioner that a friend of mine recommended had a conversation with them um they faxed over loads of paperwork got them on board and then then had to tell all the staff that basically this is what was happening which was horrible you know i mean a lot of these people all lived in the same village it was not a nice thing to do so spent a couple of days doing that and i think all in all it was from from start to finish it was like i finished like the last calls, the last bits of paperwork on a Sunday evening, and I went round to the old old owner's house and had a conversation. And I said, "I said there's some issues that I've got with the way that this has come about. I said, because this is not a today problem. This is a last year problem, and this is the year before as well. This is not just like something that's happened in a couple of months. And he just looked at the floor, he couldn't even raise his head, and his wife just
1: looked, looked at me as if to say, I know. I, I, what what confuses me is your your VC company you were working for. They obviously bought this company. What due diligence did they none? The they only paid a pound for it. So their their idea
0: was that it had got a massive order book of twenty five million quid that they could then invoice discount and and they would they weren't aware of any of these debts at all because they were all off the book. What they were doing was every time someone sent an invoice in, they'd write them a check take it off the ledger. But never send a check out. So they've got £1.7 million worth of checks not issued, written out and signed, but and dated, but not issued. Wow. Just to subcontractors, and that's without the supply run and without
1: the debt to HMRC. So essentially for them it didn't work out <laughs> the way that they wanted, because but, you know, they were expecting it to be a fairly profitable. It's, 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 yeah, they were, yeah. It sounds, you know, you, it sounds like you would have had to done a bit of a turnaround on it, but you know, if they've got twenty-five million in the pipeline, yeah. then they were probably expecting it to be fairly lucrative.
0: Yeah, they were. Well, yeah, I mean, part of the problem was that there was no margin in any of the work because there was no understanding. I mean, one of the most enlightening conversations I had with a guy who owned a company was we, was we were talking about actually like overhead recovery and stuff. And I said, "Look, I said I've asked the council for some figures. I said, like, so, so the day sort of structured, I arrived, I had coffee with the outgoing owners." I said, look, I need loads of information because I want to send you and stuff. Can you get me this stuff? And while that's happening, I'll meet with the department heads. So I went and had a meeting with the with the estimator. And um, I said to him, so do you like do you price net or are you putting overhead on me? he was like, pardon? Now, some company, for context, some companies will, the estimators will just price the work at the net, net, net costs, and then the main board will add the overheads. Other businesses, the estimator will price it net, and then they'll add overhead. It depends on the size of the business. Because this wasn't a massive company, so it's more often that the estimator will put the overheads on. It. And when he when he sort of gave me the answer, he's like, it's quite apparent he didn't know. It was like, right, okay. But this guy was managing the team; he'd got three other estimators working for him. So I then, when they had a conversation with the QS and said, "Look, what's going on with this? Where's where's the latest CVR, which is, which is an acronym for cost value reconciliation?" which is basically a profit statement on a project every month, okay. which is common in construction. You run them every month and they'd never done them. They'd never run CDRs. So you've got a person not putting any over in their jobs. You've got a QS not actually tracking whether there's any profit. And I, I said to, I went back in and uh, sort of I don't know, about 11 o'clock by some of these meetings. And I said to the outgoing owner, I said, um, it's like, is everything right? I said, yeah, it's all right. So, so I said, but I have got a question. I said, what is it you think that these quantity swabs are doing? And you know when you look at someone's face and you think you can gauge the answer. I thought I was going to be able to gauge the answer. Oh, how wrong was I? He said, it's really simple, Richard. He said, I don't even know what a quantity does. And I looked at him and I said, pardon? What do you mean you don't know what a QS does? You've hired these people. How did you appoint them? How did you like find them? And he said, well, he said, it all come about. He said, because I was in the pub with my pal. He said, and I was moaning about having all this paperwork. So my mate said, yeah, you want to get one in QSs? They'll sort it out. He said, so i got one. And then he come in and he said, oh, I'm too busy. He said, so I've got another one. He said, and that's just how it happened. Like, absolutely
1: no systems or processes whatsoever. And the irony is none of them sorted it out at all. Yeah, exactly. No it all just turned up for a free lunch wow yeah i mean obviously it's we laugh but obviously there was a as you said uh you know a lot of people would have been impacted by the closure of that business how how many people you know uh over, you know, over five I got let go over about 150 but
0: in terms of got impacted there was another 70 subcontractors like some of them had got teams of 10 20 30 40 people So in terms of reach, I mean, I had a conversation with the administrator about this, and we reckon about between 500 and 1,000. Wow. Yeah, I mean, the village pub nearly went bust. The village shop, like, lost a load of money because half these people had got... You know, like, back in the day, you used to get, like, credit in the shop. Well, half these people had got, like, credit in the shop. So, yeah, it was was not fun. I mean, it sort of... It all come on top. Well, I dealt with it, got the administrator on board, um, and then I literally had like a few days off and I flew out to Egypt for a few days and went to stay in Luxor. And I was sitting in a cafe, just like sitting there and, and my company phone had been turned off. So I'd bought a phone at the airport. And the only people that knew what the number was was my son, my mum and dad, and the finance director, Georgina. No one else had this number. And I'm sitting in this cafe, just sitting with my back to the wall of the cafe, was like looking at the wall of the cafe. So my back to the, this like rough horrible like dirt track alleyway just like drinking this coffee which to be brutally honest was a bit pony and I lit a fag and, a, and my phone rang or it just like saw it like light up on the table and I picked it up to answer it, and I thought it was just fucking double early in England it's like who's going to be phoning me this time I thought it was like, I didn't think it'd be my mum and dad and I knew it wouldn't be my son I thought it might be the finance director because we'd both signed allegedly we'd never signed them they'd been signed on our behalf personal guarantees so I thought it might be her because she was worried about her like personal guarantee and her personal safety and all that sort of stuff And it wasn't it was this guy and I'll never forget his voice and he said if you think you can run you better think again stand up and turn around slowly and as I stood up and turned around he was pointing a gun at me No way. Yeah, Yep. In Egypt? In Egypt. I don't know what kind it was. I can tell you it was pretty short sure, and it was black. But in the middle of broad daylight? The of the of the end, in the middle of broad daylight, yeah.
1: So what did you do? Um, I shit myself.
0: I'm not proud of it. Literally, I shit myself. And he said, you will not get away with this. And he just walked off up the street. Who what? Do you know who he was? I know that he was hired by one of the people that allegedly lost money but didn't because they'd actually got credit insurance for above the amount that they were on the book for. But they were acting, they kind of saw themselves as a bit of a kind of like, bit of a Robin Hood maybe is probably the best way to describe it and thought that they were doing, like they were acting on behalf of all of the other um, people that lost money.
1: So this is the creditors that were owed, you know, hundreds of thousands. Not because when you, for, for, I thought it was going to be one of the, you know, one of the staff that got let go right. or something like that. No, it was one of the creditors. So yeah,
0: business failure and has fucking consequences.
1: So did that ever come back? And did there anything more happen around around that? Nope. When I came, I came back. We had a meeting with the administrator to go through and hand over,
0: because I'd got like a massive bundle of paperwork, because one of the problems was there was no, uh, although this company had got sage and like digitized or very early digital records, they'd not really used them. And I'm a massive believer in the principle of Geigo. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, garbage in, garbage out. So I was like, right, for all none of this information is of any use to me. I'm just going to start from scratch. So literally, I just have got pages of notes. I'd, I'd emailed or phoned all of the suppliers and said, can you fax me your statements and the orders? So I'd validated all of the information, but I'd done it on paper format rather than on digital format. So I'd got like a big bundle of documents. So I had a meeting with the administrators when I got back um, and he suggested that a a meeting with a couple of the creditors, which I said I was happy to do, uh, which I did and explain the situation. And, you know, there was a lot of emotion they were very angry. They were pissed off because they they had to face the reality that the company was actually not going to be able to pay them. Whereas for probably about eighteen months to two years, some of them had been chasing the owner for money, and was like, "Yeah, yeah, well, you can earn it on the next job, and I will. The next job will be really profitable." And they'd almost been just like longing them down the road a little bit, whereas I'd said, "Right, so this stops and it stops today." So that made meant they had to face this very harsh reality that they weren't going to see their money. And, you know, should they blame themselves? Should they have blamed the, the previous owner that was, like, basically just taking the piss out of them? Albeit necess- not necessarily... I mean, he couldn't deal with the fact that he was going to lose his company because he didn't know. But as I can tell you, that one person who wasn't at fault was me, but it's always the missing that gets shot.
1: Almost literally. So that never there was never any other follow up threat. No. And did you know the company that essentially did, made that that call? Not definitely. It's one of three. Right. 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 So. And do you, were were they one of the people that you actually had that conversation with? I had conversations with one of those three. The other the other two
0: declined to attend a meeting and they said, "Look, it's in the hands of our." Um, one said it was in the hands of their bank. One said it was in the hands of their credit insurer. So which is why I can never be certain because unless I've looked into the whites of someone's eyes, mm. I don't know, I'm a pretty good judge of character and I know I think I know if I was sitting in front of them and I put that question on them, I think I'd be able to gauge from their body reaction whether it was them or not. But because I only met one of the three, it's impossible to know what the reaction was of the two of them, so. Challenging time like, and it's really yeah, weird honestly. because it kind of, for a long time, it was something that that was kind of like on my shoulder. And then I was talking, and it, do you know what's really weird? And the one thing I love about construction more than the products is the people. And I was talking on stage in a clubhouse room during COVID, and I went absolutely stone cold because a person came into the audience with the same name as the finance director of that company. And I was like, what a talk i mean there's about a thousand people in this room it was back when clubhouse was quite big during sort of COVID. yeah
1: yeah
0: it turns out it was her and we've since gone on to like we've had and we haven't met up in person but we've had probably i don't know 10 or 12 conversations um we've shared clubhouse rooms together we've done some work together um sharing knowledge around helping other people prevent stuff um and she's like she said, I just, you know, I'm glad someone had the balls to do it. She said, because I don't know that I would have done. To so close the company now? Yeah, I mean, she lost her house over it because the bank called her PG in and she would, she didn't negotiate. She just let them take the house, which was sad because she was a single mum with two young kids. Oh my God. Mm, so Why didn't they follow up with you? Uh, I negotiated because we, we basically hadn't signed them. They'd been signed on our behalf. So I, I I queried mine and I got my solicitor right to write a letter saying that you know this has been obtained fraudulently. I've never signed it. I've never like, but because obviously my name was on the company, they were like, "Well, you must have known something about it." I'm like, "No." So I, it was for 120 grand, and I give them 10 grand, but I did it over the course of three years. So yeah, not fun.
1: Why Why were you asked to sign a PG on? I wasn't. When you I didn't sign it. To just be... w-
0: right. Someone of the one of the one of the people in the business that bought it. Needed to provide some security, and they signed PGs, but basically fraudulently on behalf of me and the finance director. Oh my no, god! Yep. And she didn't
1: push back. No, she well, she didn't know she could. All right. Wow. Ooh, she didn't know she could. She thought I was mad for even trying. I mean, the fallout of this, you know, one business, even though you it wasn't actually your business, is quite incredible. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah,
0: I mean, I had to do it. I had to do an IVA after it because I'd put thirty grand's worth of materials. Because we were juggling cash flow, I'd put thirty K's worth of materials on a credit card to keep a particular project going. Which was fine. We used to do it all the time. It wasn't a problem. Because we all had like company company Amex cards and we had personal credit cards. So we would all we were always do it. It was never a problem. And then credit card bill would come in, just flip money across it. It's done, job, done. But yeah, when it went bang, I've got thirty grand sitting on two credit cards. Right.
1: Well did you get that paid off? Yeah, no, I did. I did an IVA and paid it off. Just um, for people that might not know, what what is an IP? Individual voluntary arrangement. So you enter in an arrangement with your creditors
0: to pay them off. So yeah, so so a a lot of the advice was to go bankrupt. Like loads of people said to me, like just go bankrupt. You might have to pay it, and I was like, no, I'm not doing that. It's wrong. I could have done, but I chose not to.
1: Yeah, I've actually spoken about bankruptcy before on this podcast, and um, it's actually quite a enlightening conversation actually because um the advice that um that was mark lloyd got at the time was actually um that negotiating with the creditors was actually the better option but he said in hindsight he should have taken the bankruptcy
0: yeah do you know what so it's, it's personal i think it's very it's a very personal thing i mean it was it was painful for for a lot of years and even even up until seven years ago like, when, we've, when we moved house and got a mortgage, we had to go with, like, a, I don't know what they called it. Like it wasn't was a subprime lender, but it wasn't a high street lender. Because um, even though I'd paid it back and I'd satisfied the IVA, it was still there, and, like you know, it's, it does take a long time. is like, over in a couple of years, whereas that's not. But, it's and, and ironically, you, see, you know, you're doing the right thing as well. That's the thing. It's almost like mm. you're getting punished for doing yeah. the right thing. So, you know, I can see what Mark's saying.
1: Nice time, Mark. And that um, incident with obviously in Egypt, what toll did that have on you?
0: Oh, for a long time, for a long, long time. And it was—it was only really, it was only. Re- I'll tell you exactly when it was. I was on a business retreat for a mastermind in Cork, so it would have been twenty, probably twenty eighteen. I was on a mastermind, and we were talking about—we were at the end of year one of stone contracts. And um, it was kind of like business master, so you had to sort of like say what your year's numbers were and say what the plan was for year two. And I sort of said like, this is what we've done in year one. Um, we're just got, sort of going to sort of grow like the same in year two, but but we, you know, we've got a lot of secured work because essentially it was all it was all secured off my reputation and then tendered. And uh, and they were like, but no one knows who you are outside of the network of people you've got, which is obviously vast and good no one knows who you are. You need to, like, start posting on social media. And I was like, that's not happening. And I was like, just I'm just not doing it. And we'd done, I think I'd done about 55 minutes of, like, my one-hour sort of, like, hot seat session on this retreat. And, um, and everyone was, like, really complimentary. And, you know, they were all, like, clapping and going, do you know what, it's fucking, like, what you've done to set a business up from scratch with nothing bootstraps, like, properly and build what you've done and deliver it. It's really good. I stood up, and literally, it was almost like I was in slow motion. And I stood up, and as I stood up, the mentor barked at me to sit down. He wasn't finished. And I was like, oh, okay, I didn't see that coming. And he was like, what is this thing about, like, not being out there? He said, you can't be a secret in this success. But I was like, I don't know. And we sort of danced around for about 10 minutes with, like, different things. And in the end, it was that, like, fear of actually... Like, you know, as much as none of this is my fault, I can see that now, I, at that time, still felt like I was responsible for it because it was me that had, that had called the administrator. And um, I had a really good session. I'd, like, a, ended up having, like, another hour of hot seat. I then did loads of work with a couple of people in the group, um, went back to the coach that I was working with, had spent some time with him, reframed a lot of stuff, went back and did some time running and stuff with NLP. Um, and reevaluated all that stuff and looked at it from other people's perspective which was hard but it was a really interesting piece of work to do and I, and I actually got got clarity of it because you know we all look at a situation or or a circumstance or a person or whatever we're viewing from our perspective we don't look at it from sideways or from somebody else's perspective and to do that took quite a lot of time but was really really powerful exercise to do
1: what was the reframe that really helped you change your mindset on it and overcame that fear okay so
0: so having a conversation with um a couple of the people that had had businesses um that were affected by it certainly i am um, i reached out in a conversation with the administrator about it and another conversation with them i had a conversation with one of the members of family from the original owner about it and it was about it was everybody's like when i said to them so So where do you think this went wrong? And not one of them mentioned me at all. And they were like, we don't even know why you even have asked us to talk about this. And I was like, because I've been carrying this round like a fucking sack of weights behind me. And it was, I don't think it was one thing that one person said. I think it was the combined weight of everything. It was like every time someone said something, I lost one of the 10-kilo discs out of my bag, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Until I got to the and I was like, okay, this sack's empty now. But what what am I even
1: doing with this sack? Fuck it, just jog it on. How long did you hold that? You said it... Oh, years. probably 10 years. 10 years? Yeah. But did you always have a, you know, a, a fear of not just a sense of responsibility but like a literally a, f- a fear for your life because of that really serious death threat i have done a few times
0: i've woken up a few times in the night in cold sweats about it. Yeah, yeah and it's really weird stuff there was a guy sitting at a table next to me smoking marble cigarettes and if i smell marble cigarettes it can be a trigger. not always but it can be a trigger
1: it's really, some, really, really weird. Is that something you've kind of had to do some, some work on?
0: Yeah, so I've broken... The, yeah, so I've done some work with one of my coaches and, and sort of broken that panel as much as we can because one of the other things was that they sold um, the vats of coffee and that's what I was drinking and the vats of coffee was like a massive trigger and then the vats of coffee was in the UK and I, like you'd walk walk past the coffee shop suddenly and someone would be outside and I'd smell it and I'd be like, I would literally it was like someone had put me in a TARDIS and put me back there. Like it oh was God. so, so uncomfortable. And I would shake and I would be there. I was, being, it It's not nice.
1: Wow. Just from the smell. Mm-hmm. So obviously there's a lot, there's a lot there. And obviously, you know, as you said it, it, that, you know, there was a thousand people potentially uh, involved in that. And there was impacted by that closure. But is that, would you say that is the main sort of business failure that you've kind of been involved. I think that's probably yeah, I think so. I mean I mean it that's probably the bigger
0: one. I mean obviously when stone contracts got hit by two clients not paying us um two and a half years a bit years ago um we were forced into liquidation because we we couldn't survive that. You know, I mean at the start of COVID we've got four million quid worth of work, which we lost within a week. So to then suffer that and then plus also two clients not paying us um yeah was was a pain. I mean, we paid everyone off. There was one subcontractor that didn't get paid because the client on that project didn't pay. But other than that, everyone else got paid, with the exception of HMRC. And we, you know, we fought too. for now. I mean, it was one of the reasons for me doing more speaking was to build a bigger network of clients and a bigger network of projects. But it was just, you know, it was the death knell, unfortunately, losing so much work at the beginning of COVID and then having two clients not pay their bill either. It was like, I mean, we, I mean, we, got, we should have got paid 60 grand on one job for a scaffold that we'd put up. We paid the scaffold in full for that scaffold, even though we never got paid. Right. So then you had the, the, the sort of debt. Yeah, so we wanted to make sure we, like, we treated all the subcontractors fairly. Because I've been that subbie. I know what it's like. It's horrible. And I didn't want to ever, ever, ever
1: be the person that caused that situation for someone else. So that 4 million you lost, was that literally overnight? As soon as COVID course, hit, or was it was over that... the course of nine days. Nine days. Yeah, because they um, were big. What big? Um,
0: yeah, they were big block repair and maintenance contracts. So, if you think about, they were like one was for a new roof, two were for new fire doors and common part refurbishments, and three were for external repairs and decorations, new windows and new roofs. So, if you think about the backdrop of the start of COVID, no one knew what was going to happen. But everyone was living at home. Nobody knew where they're going to be money wise. So so who who wants to go and spend seven hundred and fifty grand repairing the roofs and repairing the windows? So then okay, they're a bit knackered, but they're not falling out. Mm. And every and literally it was almost like a carbon copy email got sent round to all the clients because the message pretty much was the same that we don't know what's going on right now. We can't commit these people to spend this amount of money. Because are they going to be able to pay for it? Are they going to have a job in six months' time? And it was so it wasn't a case of pausing it; it was just a case of literally just chopping it. Yeah, literally, they were cancelled because those tenders were only valid for six months as well. And you know, it was tough; it was really hard. But but the thing that that I did see sort of very very quickly was was okay. We lost all of those works got cancelled because of the like when the tenders would have expired. But we would never have been able to do that work once inflation started getting rampant. We'd never have been able to do it for that price anyway, because we they were fixed prices. So what would have happened there if you if well you know, we if you had to so what would have happened? So we'd we we'd been given letters of intent to proceed with those contracts. So we would have had to have gone back to the client and said, look, you know, under the contract that. The inflation situation is such that we can't honour those original tender prices. We need to negotiate. Now, we were the lowest price on all those tenders. So if if they said we're well, not negotiating with you, they'd have to go with someone else. But they would have still ended up paying an inflationary uplifted price. But would they have been able to afford it? Probably not. So it was just a perfect storm of lots of different things all all coming into play together. I mean, we did one job where we priced to do two roofs and they were 11 no they were 10 grand each roof and we were going to make two and a half grand out of each one we did two and then the client asked for another eight to be done two a month and by the time we got to the end the last two roofs cost us two and a half grand to do that's how much the inflation that got up
1: on material mm-hmm. and that four million pound of work that you lost was that something that you could have like anticipated that it was coming and um, did you, you know, within your business, given the sort of murmurs of COVID and sort of, you know, January and, and things, was that something that was ever on your radar that no, it was, you know No, because we were all like, that I mean, don't get me wrong, we were sort of like in touch with a few different
0: people, but it was always construction's gonna keep going. There's no there's not gonna be any issues. People were just sort of weren't really taking it seriously. I mean, we shut projects down because I walked around, we had a massive project in um, Chiswick in London, and I was walking around the scaffold with a client when COVID was a was a, a very much a thing, but we were still told we could still carry on opening, and we were walking around snagging, just snagging the painting, and a scaffold's four boards, four boards on the main tranche and then an inside board, so it's five boards wide at nine inches a board, and they were saying you've got to be two meters apart. So if you've got someone there painting, you can't physically walk past them it's impossible to work so we were like we just we need to stop and the client went absolutely mental and like you can't stop the government advice is to carry on i'm like no the government advice is two meters we can't physically practically do that how did how do i risk assess that and and what do i do do i say okay well we'll carry on and then if someone dies on my site i'm then responsible for that that's not happening on my watch
1: yeah it's such a tricky yeah, such a tricky time for for everyone because it's just so many unknowns. Yeah, you just can't
0: point. win. I mean, we just uh, we just hired a contracts manager. Like, I mean, we, his salary was fifty grand plus vehicle plus like employer's national insurance. It's like an eighty five thousand pound package. We'd literally just hired him, and we had to pay him for a year. But because of when we'd hired him, literally we were two days out of being able to claim for his money, So we couldn't claim for his wages. So me and Gemma had to put money into the company to pay for it. As well as not take wages out ourselves. But we couldn't not we couldn't not pay the guy, we wouldn't do that. It's just not fair. It's not his fault. And what were the other fallouts of, of losing all of that work? So so I mean ultimately, I mean I went back to because all of the big plan works couldn't be done, we were back to doing the only thing we could do was reactive repairs. Like reactive roof leaks, like plumbing issues, that sort of stuff, insurance work. So we went back to doing that because that was actually work that you could actually get on and do. Um but you know, I mean we were doing some months we'd do we, a four million pound turnover is like between three and five hundred grand a month. We were doing probably fifteen K a month, in fact. And I had to be out on the tools as well to manage to drive that level of sales. It was just it was unsustainable. Did you have to let um, did you downsize your team yeah, in that series? Yeah, so we let a load of people, a lot, load of people go. We kept the contracts later on for a year, but ultimately had to let him go as well. Um, we, we reduced the amount of like VAs and stuff we were working with as well. So yeah, we had, yeah we had no choice. It's a shame, but you know, how did that feel? Oh, horrible! It was sickening. Like even now, it makes me feel sick because, and and do you know what, Jesse? Stupid things. Like, all of our branding, my wife did. Like, all of the... So, all of our vehicles had, um, like, hand-drawn pictures of buildings we've worked on that she had done. She would like, taken, like, those images taken. It's things like that, the amount of time that people invested into growing something that was not only successful, clients loved working with us.
1: Yeah, it's, it's pretty galling. No, definitely. It sounds like it's still a bit raw.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, it's not. Wasn't nice. We had bailiffs at the door. I mean, I was out. I mean, which is worse, I was out, and a bailiff turned up, and Gemma was here on her own. It's, it's fucking brutal. It really is. And you know, could we have foreseen it? You know, who in the world foresaw COVID coming?
1: No one. No. Everyone was just caught by surprise, I suppose, and and, and the impacts and how quickly. It ended. Yeah, the scale of it, the
0: scale of the impact. I think you know, it was like it was almost like a hockey stick, wasn't it? It was like, okay, we've got a problem.
1: Vroom. And that bailiff incident, you know, did that affect things? Did that cause stress within your relationship? Yeah, massively. Yeah, because I was I was I'm travelling to a speaking event when it happened,
0: and it was like, I mean, i most almost like they left and I managed to jump on the phone and sort it out but you can never undo that what was the was it a psychological impact yeah definitely yeah yeah massively for for Gemma massively and also for me as well because you know that's
1: my wife I don't want to be put in that situation well, yes. was it was it a kind of um, a nice bailiff call or was it more of a threatening kind of
0: um, like... to be fair they were okay I don't want to over dramatise it they were okay um,
1: but they got a job to do yeah. So yep. you know. Yeah, and those clients that didn't pay that, that ultimately yeah. you know, resulted in the company shutting down. What was the scenario there then? So, so they were block
0: management companies. So if you live in a flat in a block of flats, yep. so you're own the on the leaseholder your flat, but the freehold's owned by a freeholder, and when they want to do works, there's a freehold limited company that that becomes the client to deliver that work. Hmm. So. Those clients don't make profit. They don't make sales. The money that they get to do work is funded by individual private flat owners putting money in through service charge. So, but the problem was that when all of the shit with COVID was happening, we're also in the back background with our Grenfell Tower. So, all these people that are in flats that are non-compliant that haven't got fire doors that haven't got fire stopping, which is work streams that we used to do are all busy shitting themselves that their flats, like, can't be sold because at this at this point in time, like, nobody will sign a mortgage of first a flat. So they basically took the money that was in the block management account to pay down to get loads of fire protection work done. But when it came for our invoices to be paid, there was no money left to pay for it. Is there anything you could have done about that? Or did you try? Well, yeah, we did, yeah. We sought legal advice... Um, on both cases, we saw sort of legal advice from separate. And because they're block management companies and there's no money in those businesses, you're trying to recover money from something that has nothing in order to recover it from. Mm. So they were like, listen, if, in order to do this, you'd have to go, well, in first instance, you'd have to go to adjudication. That's probably 25 grand, which is like minimum. If you win at adjudication, then you're going to have to enforce it. That's high court. That's probably like 50 to 100 grand. We didn't have that kind of resources to be able to put into two... And because they were two separate adjudications, we'd have two separate loads of costs. And how much money were you owed? Uh, just over 100k. But we'd so They would have cost you more yeah, potentially... and we'd already poured every bit of our savings. We'd not taken wages. You know, we just didn't have the financial resources to be able to carry on. Which is a shame, but, you know... Businesses and... Business is great when it's going well, but when it's
1: not, it can be quite challenging. And was that a scenario that was caused by COVID? Would it have happened, you know, if there wasn't COVID? Yeah, um I think I think there were two two big contributory factors. One was COVID because that's what
0: caused the rest of the works to be cancelled. Because if we'd have had that four million quid worth of work on site, we could probably have traded out well, we could have traded out of it. But it was the fact that also the issues around the post Grenfell work and the fact that people couldn't get basically their flats were like valued at zero because of the lack of compliance that's what caused lots of people to want to rush off and get work done and the whole block management industry you know is bandit country after people that work in block management they haven't got any qualifications you've got you've got block managers that literally have got no qualifications they're in charge of people's budget but they don't track spending so they'll They'll keep placing orders to get rid of a problem, but they won't realise that they're over the service charge demand. So it's major work. So they've got to do section 20 process in order to be able to charge the money. I mean, that's, that's quite a common one because if you spend more than 250 quid per flat, you have to consult with the leaseholders. And the other one is they don't track what they're spending. So they might have 10 grand, but. But, you know, it's a bit like that comedy sketch where the, the woman goes shopping and she spends £100 grand, £100 on clothes and then goes and spends £100 on food shopping, but she's only got £100. You can't spend the same £100 twice. But that's what happens. Loads. Of, I mean, you talk to any contractor in block management, lift companies, electrical companies, AOV specialists, fire alarm people, they all have murder getting paid. Is there anything you could have done differently in hindsight? Uh, is there anything we... Is there anything we could have done differently in hindsight? I think I don't know that we could have done anything to really avoid COVID. I think the issues around the client, potentially we could have asked for a deposit. Um, in reality, when we've done that in the past, we've ended up not winning the job. Because in that industry, people just don't pay deposits. It's all JCT contracts that are paid on monthly valuation. So your fund, your front in the project, the first month and then another month where you actually get the valuation side off and get the money in.
1: What was the sort of lowest point in that that period for you? Um, what was the lowest point? When I realised we weren't getting paid for
0: that scaffold I was on the roof of the building in um, Barnet and I contemplated throwing myself off the
1: top. Why did it feel that significant I suppose? Why? Um, because yeah why why did yeah why did it sort of hit you so much that you wanted to potentially end your life I'd
0: had a conference call with our accountant to go through and look at could we trade out the situation when we realised we weren't going to get paid for those jobs and, and you know I mean we've got amazing accountants we still work with them now we work with them on all our businesses um, they were hugely supportive throughout but it was the realisation that it doesn't matter we're out of options. No matter how hard we try, we're out of options. And the fact that it's got a name all over it, the fact that it's our our personal brand as much as our business brand was just absolutely... And I knew, like, the impact it had at home as well was just huge. And I was like, do you know what? If I just check out, at least, like, Gemma and the kids will get something. Well, subject... Um, What stopped me? I don't know, because I was up there for a couple of hours. I think I got cold. Well, I don't think I know I got cold. Um, My phone rang a few times, and I ignored it, and I think in the end I just got to a point where I just thought, you know what, I need to answer this. Um, And the person that I spoke to, um, I I didn't didn't tell them the situation, Um, but a conversation I had, I help them fix a problem and me helping them fix their problem was like I do have some purpose and it was as simple as that it wasn't it wasn't like a paid coaching call or a mentor call it was actually another subby because um, I did like I helped subcontractors that hammer getting hammered by other main contractors and I was just giving someone advice about how to sort out getting paid by someone
1: but yeah it was that and that's quite enlightening, isn't it? Actually, you helping someone made you realise that you could continue to help people, and then you, you know, you did have a a sort of positive future in front of you. So, what did the aftermath of that look like? How did you sort of come out of the out of the ashes? So,
0: I was already talking to a couple of other people about actually. Because one of my coaches was saying to me, look, like, I went on a retreat in Tenerife and he said to me, look, it's quite clear during the course of this week, the amount of input you've had with other people, the scale and depth of your knowledge that you've been able to just go, right, the solution to that is that, this is what you need to do with that. He went, you need to teach people what you know, because i'd already, i'd been told a few years ago that i've got an illness called ulcerative colitis which is is man i manage it through medication but there's no cure for it and it is going get worse and he said to me look he said like he said you've sort of said about like a few of these clients where like in the property space where they're doing stuff that's not lawful it's not legal he said and the fact that it's what they're doing is illegal he said have you, have you ever contemplated the fact that actually maybe it should be illegal, that you take all that knowledge you've got and you take that to the grave? And I've never, I've never, well, one, I've never really thought about the fact that I've got a lot of knowledge, because that to me is quite, um, may come across as quite an egotistical thing to do, and I'm probably the least egotistical person on the planet. I'd never, I don't know, you just, you know, every time someone said to me, I oh, you want to do a course or, well, I've had over half a million pounds of training just on one type of contract. Like, I've had a lot of companies invest a lot of training in me, but I'd never really thought about maybe using that to help other people. And that was really a bit of a big turning point because as much as I've coached and mentored scores of people in like professional roles, like for on teams that I've managed and built and stuff, i would never really thought about actually sort of writing a course to teach people project management. And it took, it took me a while because I I mean I never really liked school. I mean I went there because it was where the cigarette shop was and the rugby pitch, and it's where me and Gemma met. But we didn't get we didn't both get married straight from school. So my, me and education were not like good bedfellows. It wasn't a happy marriage. And when he said to me because you could teach it, so I was like, you what? And all I heard was teacher, and I was like, I ain't no teacher. Mm-hmm. But. When I started speaking to people about it and talking to different people in that industry, they were like, "This is just a absolute no-brainer. Like, why have you not done this? You should have been doing this ten years ago. Why have you? Why have you not
1: done it? I Was like, I don't know. Did you have just, given the? Um, I just never thought about it. And it was. I think the fact that obviously your bit yeah. closed down. Did you? Did you have any sort of doubts or did it knock your confidence at all? Um, did it knock my confidence? Uh, no. It didn't knock my confidence, and the reason for that is
0: because I know that everything we did was right. I know we left no in this no pun, but we left no stone unturned in terms of trying to find a way out of it. So no, it didn't. It did it did make me think about things a little bit, probably. You know, I properly wear my heart on my sleeve all the time. Would I do that? Yeah, I would. But I'd be lying if I said I didn't think about, should I actually do that? But I don't think I'd be being true
1: to myself if I was any different. And what, what kind of lessons have you taken from from that and, you know, maybe the other um, business closure we were talking about and how those lessons helped you, um, So, like, to date? The never, ever, ever just rely on one stream of income.
0: So right now I've got non exec role and non executive six businesses. I've got coaching business with clients. We've got a training company. We've got service accommodation. I'm writing a book. I'm doing other stuff with media. We've got loads of different income streams. So that we are and you know, none of them are like setting the world on fire, but it's it's enough just mm. across all of those different funnels to to keep keep the lights on. Just it's flickering a little bit. But yeah, I think that's the biggest lesson is is multiple streams of income. Without a shadow of that, and you didn't have that. I thought, thought about it, it. just literally, just thought, yeah, mm. stains and wild. Just get up and and work. Just get up and work hard,
1: because it's always served me. And given you, I suppose spoke about, you know, potential kind of suicide at that. Was there any other after effects around your mental health and around your kind of mindset? Um, yeah, I mean you know, mental health and mindsets
0: are massive, massive subjects. I mean I've lost two of my best friends to suicide, so you know, it's not it's not something that's ever ever too far from my thoughts. But you know, you've got to be you've got to live in the moment and we've got to be grateful for the things that we have. And I don't want to come on here and preach to other people how they should live their life, but I try and find gratitude in in all of the stuff. Like, I'm grateful right now to be doing this podcast with you. You know, we might get 10 listeners, we might get 100. Do you know what? If one person takes one nugget, sweet, I'm happy with that. I'm just... I try and and live life with GPS, gratitude, perspective and service. I'm finding gratitude in the smaller things because, you know... Everybody can get caught up in oh well I want X in the bank or I want a bigger motor or I want to do that extension or I want a portfolio of a hundred properties. We are we are all where we are meant to be in life. To make the most of that and it's it's really hard and it's it is hard to actually try and be present. It's constant, you know, it's constant work. But don't lose sight of that stuff. I think that's a in pursuit of the bigger bigger goals and ambitions because if you lose sight of those that
1: stuff you'll never get the other stuff anyway and did it um because it sounds like you know gemma your your wife was also heavily invested in it as well in the business sort of personally you, you know you said both your hearts were in it did that you know cause tension and, and resentment and difficulties in your relationship as well because you know mixing Business and relationships really yeah, it's, tricky yeah, dynamics. I mean we've got it? other businesses. But particularly when things yeah. go wrong. I think it's I think it's hard when it's going well as well, because when it's going
0: well, you naturally want to spend more time doing that thing. So I think it's 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 hard whether it's good, bad or indifferent, but yeah, undoubtedly. Um because you know, we've always got each other's backs and One of the reasons that we, we sort of set the training company up together with just the servers is because we know no matter what, when there's no one else there, we've got each other's backs. There is no other JV partner in the world that you will find. And I've done JVs that have been like 50, 70 million quid, big public sector stuff, corporate business to business JVs, but in the property world, people rush into jvs too quickly and like we've had loads of opportunities that we've said no we've had some that we've started and actually people have like their values have perhaps not been what they made out they were at the beginning but i think working with your with your partner whether that's your husband or your wife or or whatever yes it brings challenges but i think also you know when the shit hits the fan you like to think that they're both, you're both still going to be stood there. And that's one of the things
1: I love about my wife is, no matter what, she's there. Mm. No, absolutely. And you you know, we all need that in our lives, don't we? So what advice would you give to new entrepreneurs about handling fear of failure? I think understand what failure is
0: in the first instance, because, and I'm not going to start reeling off wanky buzzwords and shit, failure is an opportunity. Yes, okay, plan A hasn't led to the outcome you thought it was going to. But, so plan A's failed, right? But that doesn't mean that you're a failure, it means the plan is a failure, so... So go back to the plan and look at what you could have done differently or what you should have done differently or who you should have engaged with to get someone else's perspective on it because having a one-directional plan, which is only your idea, is dangerous. But there's nothing wrong with failure. I've learned more in failure than I've ever learned in success. And no matter how successful you are, you're never too successful to look for those failures if we when we do projects if if we make the margin we, we thought we were going to make we still pick the bones out of that job at the end and and we will speak to the client we'll talk to the trades we'll talk to subcontractors we'll talk to the team okay what could we have done better what wasn't perfect where did we go wrong i'm just working with one of my non-exec clients at the moment to bring in a process called customer care calls where a completely independent person outside of the operational team puts a call into the client to ask a suite of questions that understand where the client's perspective is of us as a business, irrespective of what the operational relationship is so that we get that second set of opinions that haven't got any bias or haven't got any spin or you know, there's no one with a vested interest covering stuff up. So having a proper holistic view of actually, if it failed, why did it fail? And then pick yourself up, dust yourself off, learn from it and go again. One of my biggest, probably biggest traits is bounce back ability. If you're going to be an entrepreneur, you need that in spades. Because you will fail. There's nothing wrong with failure. You go to America, they fucking celebrate it. You go to America, people are high-fiving each other because my country's gone to the wall for half a million great quid, man. And someone else will come in and go, no, man, I'm better. Mum went to the wall for 750 million quid. And yet in this country, we'd bury people for it. Why do you think that? Um, I think this country's got a very, very, very weird relationship with itself. You've only got to look at the newspapers. I was fortunate enough to bump into Paul Gascoigne in a cafe recently. Um, and I only saw spent like five minutes just chatting to him. And Giz is like absolutely ruined from what he was. I mean, I, I remember he was my hero when I was younger. And I'll never forget like in, like that picture of him smiling, grabbing Vinnie Jones's balls. On the front page of a newspaper
1: this country loves building people up just to slash them down and how do you think that then affects the the, the country's attitude towards You've failure, failure
0: as, as, a, as a negative thing as something to like bury people for like to have a go at people to or to judge people for but the reality is right that i can't remember i, t- I think it's theodore roosevelt um, I heard it on Bre- from Brené Brown, who's like someone I absolutely hero worship. She is a phenomenal lady. And he's got a... a I don't know whether it's a poem or, or a sentence or what it is, but he talks about the man in the arena. And the reality is that if you fail at something, you've had the bullets and the minerals to be the man in the arena or the woman. But the people that will mug you off and have a go at you, they're not even in the arena they're not even in the crowd. They're just outside listening to noise. So they're not even qualified to have an opinion.
1: Yeah. And and people should be celebrated and you know, entrepreneurs and business people. Yeah, massively for being courageous. Putting themselves out there, and, and taking the risks and take making the sacrifices for starting ventures. Yeah, absolutely. So last question. If you could go back in time and erase, you know, both of those failures that we've talked about today from happening, would you do that? No. Why not?
0: Because I learned an awful lot from both experiences, and I wouldn't be the
1: person I am today without them. Why do you think? Why do you think they've had such a significant impact on 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 you and who you are today? Uh, the scale of both of them, the profoundness of them. Um, I think the fact
0: that they were different and they happened in very different phases of my life um, and because I approach every day like a school day, what can I learn from that situation? You know, I could just go, yeah, none of this is my fault, yeah, someone else's problem, but actually I've learned an
1: awful lot from both of those situations irrespective of whose fault it was. Amazing. So i got a quick fire round to end the podcast with. So it's just uh, short questions and short answers. So are you, are you ready for so if yep. your failure is first attempt in learning. What is your life's mission? What is my life? My life's
0: mission is to help as many people as possible make successful profit in profit, in property projects by doing it completely and say nice and profitably.
1: What's one piece of advice that you would want to give on your, your deathbed? Okay, skill set without mindset equals upset. Do you want to repeat that just because I think that's a good one? Skill set without mindset equals upset. Nice. Just get on a t shirt. What's one habit that keeps you resilient? What is one habit? Keeping grounded. How do you keep yourself grounded? Um,
0: by connecting with my family because. You know, you guys go to speak at an event in front of a couple of hundred people. It's very easy to come off stage feeling like a million dollars, but actually, I'm still a dad. You know, I'm still, I'm still, you know, I'm still a husband. And I'm not perfect in either of those roles. And I think having those people around you, whoever they are, to keep you grounded is absolutely crucial. If you could be immortal, would you take it? If I could be immortal, yeah, I would, because the knowledge I've got, I
1: could help more people. So, undoubtedly, yes, I would. What's one surprising fact that not many people know about you? Not
0: surpri- Okay, I got round to, I got through to the final round of the Apprentice a number of yeah. years ago.
1: Do you regret not making it to the the, the show?
0: And um, do I regret it? No, I don't. No, I don't. For a very simple so the reason I didn't get through was because I was running a company with fifty staff and there was no plan B for me to exit so that I could go on to the show. Um, but I don't regret it because for the very simple reason that I don't think I would have cut it. And I don't think I would have cut it for, for again, a very simple reason. In order to do that, you have to be, you know, in business you've got to be brutal sometimes. But in that show, you've got to be absolutely brutal towards the other mm-hmm. people that you're working with and that's not mm-hmm. a bit of me. I want to build teams, not just work
1: in isolation. So what's uh, a guest or a person that you can recommend that you think I should have on? A guest, Tony Gargam. Okay, great. And I, I, I know Tony. So why, why do you think Tony? Why? Because I think she's got an amazing story. She's got an amazing gift. She's
0: literally, she's such an eloquent speaker Then she's got a lot of knowledge that she could share to help a lot of people get out of their own way and avoid
1: their first attempt at learning amazing so where can people find you and connect with you richard uh they can find me and connect with me on facebook linkedin instagram great um so we look forward to the book when's that going to be out january
0: perfect amazing so pre-order will be christmas i'm hoping i've just got um
1: probably about a third of it left to do so great well, good luck with that. Um, thank you so much for being here and sharing so much personal oh. stuff and and going really kind of deep and, and some sort of harrowing um, tales. So really appreciate that honesty and transparency. And I know people are going to get a lot from today. So thank you.
0: No problem. Great conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to Beyond the Fail. Really hope you enjoyed this episode and learned something new. Please do subscribe to the show and leave us a review. It really does help us to grow and to reach more people. Do follow us on social media too. We're at Jeswood on Instagram and at BeyondTheFail on YouTube and also on Linktree. Thanks again and see you soon.